Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So where are we? We're entering the SICU at Johns Hopkins Hospital on Zayed 9 East. SICU is one of those hospital acronyms that makes a weird kind of sense. Because the surgical intensive care unit, the SICU, is the place you end up if you're really, really sick. Like if you just had a liver transplant or heart surgery. A few months ago, I visited Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and all 12 beds in the SICU were full. As we go down the hallway, you can see we have some dedicated um, isolation rooms. This is Cindy Dwyer, our guide to this place. She's a senior nurse, and she's been here 26 years. Right now, our patients are very sick. Most of our patients are um, intubated on breathing machines, a lot of other type of medical equipment in use, and yet it still is a little deceptively quiet. Like you would Obviously, something pretty bad has to happen for you to end up in the SICU. But it's also dangerous just being here. The amazing machines and life-saving procedures can hurt or even kill you completely by accident. So ventilators, which keep you breathing, can also give you pneumonia. The physical act of lying motionless in a hospital bed can give you a deadly blood clot. And something called a central line, an IV into a vein in your neck, chest, or groin, it lets doctors give drugs and draw blood without sticking you with a needle all the time. But it's also a great way to get an infection. And if the ICU doesn't kill you, it might drive you crazy. A third of ICU patients wind up experiencing delirium. But the people who run this unit including Cindy, are doing an experiment to try to change the odds. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human. Today, being a human in the hospital and making hospitals more humane. Because like it or not, when our bodies really fail us, this is where we end up. There's one guy behind most of the research Johns Hopkins is doing on patient safety, Dr. Peter Pronovost. Chances are you've never heard of him, but you might know him as the checklist guy. He's famous for reducing hospital infection rates by creating simple checklists for doctors and nurses. My mom would say to me, this is the research you do? You make checklists, right? And and, and the public almost incredulously saying, like, really? That's like your innovation? His research was a major innovation. He started with those central lines I mentioned a minute ago, the ones that let doctors administer drugs and draw blood more easily. They can be threaded inside you for weeks or even months at a time. Pronovost found that having doctors take five simple precautions before inserting the tubes, like washing their hands or draping the patient in a sterile sheet, brought the infections associated with them down to almost zero. These blood infections used to kill as many people as breast or prostate cancer, so it's not a trivial little issue. It's a major public health issue. It seemed almost magical in its simplicity and effectiveness. New Yorker writer Atul Gawande wrote an article about Pronovost's work, and then a book. And now that Pronovost has seen how powerful checklists can be, he wants to put them in place for everything— We said we want to evolve from eliminating one harm, like bloodstream infections, to eliminating all harms, right? A bold thing, but patients don't care if you eliminate one and they're harmed from something else. So anything that could go wrong while you're in the hospital, his goal is to eliminate it. It all starts on rounds, the daily check-ins on each patient. 
Twice a day in the SICU, Dr. Adam Saperstein and his team huddle outside each patient's room. Saperstein is what's called an intensivist, an expert in critical care. So, Jordan, are you going to be able to present? That's him, talking to one of the three residents who are here on rounds. They're pushing computers on carts so they can click through each patient's medical records while they talk. One of the residents, Jordan Talley, lays out why the patient in room 44 is here in the SICU. All right, so it's a 49-year-old gentleman. He's a status post-thoracic aortic aneurysm repair and partial heart bypass performed on July 24, 2015. The patient, Bruce Meeks, came here after an artery in his chest swelled so much it had to be repaired. Then his kidneys failed and he needed bowel surgery. He's on a ventilator, he's being fed through a tube, and he's on powerful antibiotics to fight off an infection. Every day is dicey. So any issues? Any issues? The nurse pipes up. Mentally, he's in a really great place the past two days. Um, He's able to communicate with us a little bit better. He's sitting up on his laptop, and I think he's slowly improving. So we'll go through uh, Emerge... uh platform now and then we'll do the goal sheet. This Emerge platform Dr. Saperstein is talking about lives on an iPad and it's what makes rounds here really different. Saperstein is looking at a screen with what looks like a pie chart on it. He's flipping through it with a project volunteer. This tablet takes all the information that's tracked in a bunch of separate spreadsheets and automatically runs it through all the safety checklists Johns Hopkins has become famous for. Patient has had a, a left subclavian line for 35 days. We agreed that that was okay. Each slice of pie in the pie chart represents something that could go wrong. Right now, it's alerting the doctors that the patient has had one of those central lines for over a month. The longer that line is in, the higher the risk of infection. The team talks it through, agrees it's still safe, and moves on. So why is he read here on the weakness scale? Weakness is another slice of pie. It's tracking whether patients have been mobile, which fends off weakness. This patient is supposed to get out of bed and stand up for one minute today, which in his state would be a big accomplishment. He hasn't done it yet. So the goal was set, but uh, no one has reached the goal yet. The system is really simple, and it saves a lot of time. Without this tablet, the doctors and nurses would have to walk through separate checklists to prevent blood clots and infections, they'd check for signs of delirium, all of which is so time-consuming and complicated that some detail is almost guaranteed to be missed. With this new system, it's all done automatically. So everybody who might take care of the patient is going to look at this same visual screen. Nurse Cindy Dwyer gave me a closer look at how it works. She pointed out that it isn't just doctors who can put information into this tablet. Patients and families can, too. So, you know, the patient profile, these are the type of questions that we asked, like, you know, things you might like to know about me. They can, it's a very open-ended question. They can put in anything they want. This might be the most unique innovation. Patients and their families can set their own goals for recovery and tell the medical team how they're feeling about their care or what they're afraid of. Bruce Meek's wife, Diana, let doctors know that her husband likes country music and wants to get back to doing things like cutting the grass and driving trucks. Because when this hospital says it wants to prevent all harms, they mean more than just the physical stuff. One of those slices of pie represents disrespect of a patient. Another slice is called mismatch of goals. That's when what the doctors are doing doesn't match up with what the patient actually wants. We had a patient that's family was using this portal that had um, put in that they had planned to go to Disney. 
not many of us tell our doctors our vacation schedule. In this case, the doctors were able to sit down with the family and say, that trip might not happen when you want it to. Just knowing that piece of information kind of let us start that dialogue a little bit. Yeah, which to some people, those family plans are just as important as how long your central line has been in. In fact, this whole project hinges on doctors and nurses putting patients first. Think about what checklists do. They catch mistakes. In a system that revolves around checklists, everyone caring for a patient has to learn to be okay with being corrected. They have to learn not to take it personally. Because catching mistakes isn't about making a doctor or a nurse look bad or punishing them. It's about keeping a patient, a person, from getting hurt. Cindy says the shift has been huge. We're actually much more empowered to point out things that aren't safe or that even potentially aren't safe. We now track um, near misses as opposed to be like, whew, we kind of got away with that one. Um, that Luckily, that didn't happen. But that must be hard, too, because you, when you have a near be- miss, you kind of want to forget about it. You um, feel like, oh, uh, it was a near miss. You do, you do, but we've really trained and empowered our staff that those are just as important. You know, our reporting system isn't punitive at all. It's like we want you to feel comfortable and to feel empowered to report these things so that we can track them. Coming up, why a hospital that keeps its doctors and nurses humble might be a safer one. The doctors said, Peter, you can't have a nurse question us in public. It hurts our credibility. It looks like we don't know something. To which I said, okay, welcome to the human race. We all don't know something. And we find out whether all those pie charts and checklists are actually making a difference. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Only Human. If you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook. Search for Only Human Podcast. You can keep up with what's happening on the show and let us know what you think. A listener who calls herself Sarah E. got in touch after hearing last week's interview with Bishop Gwendolyn Phillips Coates. Bishop Gwendolyn talked about helping people think through how they want to die. My dad just passed away two weeks ago, Sarah said. I was so glad I knew his wishes in advance. I want everyone to listen to this episode and have these conversations. They'll be so thankful later on that they did. We'd love hearing your feedback, so keep it coming, and thanks. Hey there, I'm Pat Walters, senior editor at Radiolab, and this summer I'm hosting a new series on the concept of intelligence. It seems like Pandora's box. We're calling the series G, and it dives deep into the biological, historical, and ethical debates swirling around this controversial idea. I'm so nervous. What exactly is intelligence? Can we measure it? And should we? Listen to Radiolab from WNYC Studios wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human. After visiting the surgical ICU at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, I wanted to talk to the checklist guy again, Peter Pronovost. I had a few questions for him. 
starting with if the goal is making an ICU as safe as it can be, why spend so much time on softer things like knowing a patient's vacation plans? So I walked across the campus to his office where he was getting ready for a big meeting. Hi. Sorry about that. And I asked him. He gave me a two-part answer. First, it's just important. Hospitals should treat people well, period. But also, he believes treating patients humanely helps them get better. It's some pretty basic things, like you know me as a person, right? You don't just say, I'm that operation or that gallbladder in room two. You say, this is Mr. Jones. He likes to be called Tim. He has three grandchildren, and his main goal is to get back to gardening. What we see is that when patients are more engaged in their care and they're more respected, they heal faster, they have better outcomes, and ironically, the clinicians are happier. You're making it sound kind of obvious that this would improve things, but is it? You know, it's interesting you say that because as our work has evolved, what we've seen is it all fundamentally boils down to the same thing, and that is this empathic care where we're humble and curious, where we respect each other and we're accountable. The structures that make us make safe decisions are the same ones that allow us to treat each other respectfully and the same ones that um, allow us to have empathy for our patients. Okay, so if we accept that an empathetic place is also a safer place, how do we get there? Pronovost says you have to change something fundamental to how hospitals have historically functioned. You have to be able to question the authority of doctors. I wanted to know, how hard is it to overhaul the hierarchy of a hospital? I'll share with you a story. When we first were trying to get some of this culture work done, I started saying, okay, we're going to invite patients on rounds, and we want to make sure the nurse is present on rounds because they have valuable input. And if the nurse isn't available, we'll go to a different room and come back. So picture this. Instead of having doctors huddle outside of patients' rooms relying on written reports by the nurses, they'd now go out of their way to make sure the nurse and the patient or the patient's family were able to be there. And that might mean the doctors wouldn't do rounds in the orderly way they were used to. And you would have thought that it is written in the Bible that you must go in order room one, two, three, four, and five. Because when I said, no, it's okay, we can like walk the 10 feet down to room five and then come back, you know, it was this... You can see people cringing. Pronovost calls changes like this small acts of creative transgression. They're part of his attempt to change the culture of the hospital one step at a time. It tapped into an innate need that every one of our doctors and, and nurses were filling. And a matter of fact, uniformly, you could kind of see people perk up, and it's rewarding for them, and it's rewarding for patients. But is it working? A year and a half into the project, clinicians in the SICU have used it to care for thousands of patients. Johns Hopkins can't say for sure yet that the system is better, but key markers are moving in the right direction. Delirium and blood clot rates have gone down. There are more meetings between doctors, patients, and family members to make sure everyone is on the same page. And there are plans to expand the program. An intensive care unit at the University of California's Medical Center in San Francisco has started using it and pilot programs start around the country next year. Back in the SICU, Dr. Saperstein is nearing the end of his shift. He's the first to admit they still don't know if the system will work at Johns Hopkins or anywhere else. But he believes in the goal of engineering better care. Everybody wants to have 
Peter Pronovos be their intensivist. But the quality of your care shouldn't be dependent on exceptional human performance. He says you have to make exceptional care part of the system. Early on in planning this project, a colleague said to Dr. Saperstein, I get why you're trying to bring infections down and reduce blood clots. But why red flag something as abstract as mismatch of goals? Dr. Saperstein said this. We are really, really good at preventing people from dying in the ICU. And oftentimes, patients and family members know that what someone really wanted was to be cured and to have a normal life. And they never wanted to be um, preserved in an ICU without the hope of having that. Suddenly, I realized we were having a conversation about how we die. And that might be one of the most interesting side effects of this project. Re-engineering the ICU to make the patient's point of view central leads to a kind of existential place. At a hospital like this, it's easy to throw a lot of care at a patient, keep them alive with machines and surgeries, until one of those slices of pie in the pie chart glows red. Suddenly, these doctors find themselves asking, is this actually what the patient wants? The patient we heard about at the beginning of this episode, Bruce Meeks, he spent more than four months in the SICU. He was released to a regular hospital floor just this month. And last week, something really special happened. This is his daughter, Tiffany. I had a white gown on and I had my bouquet of flowers. Um, Dad held my left hand and we walked down the aisle together. (laughs) Well, of course, he was in a wheelchair. Meeks got to see his daughter get married. The wedding was planned for next fall, but Tiffany decided they shouldn't wait. The ceremony was at the hospital chapel. The staff arranged for violins, a choir, flowers, and a wedding cake. There were silver bows on the seats and a reception afterwards. Every girl wants their dad to walk them down the aisle, and I didn't think that it was going to happen, and it happened. There was another thing she wasn't sure she'd see. Her dad leaving the hospital. Johns Hopkins plans to send him to a rehab facility soon, bringing him one step closer to going home. We want to know about your experiences with hospitals, as a patient or a family member. Do you worry about things like infections and medical mistakes? Did you feel like doctors were treating a whole person or an illness? And what about just being in the hospital got under your skin? Share your story with us, and we might use it for a future show. Send an email to onlyhuman at wnyc.org or find us on Facebook. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Paige Cowett and edited by Molly Messick. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Kenny Malone, Fred Mogul, and Catherine Tam. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Our executive producer is Lital Malad. Jim Schachter is the vice president of news for WNYC. Special thanks this week to our interns, Wynn Periasami and Lena Walker. You guys have been such a great help over the last few months. Good luck with whatever comes next. I'm Mary Harris. Back at you soon.
Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Charina Endowment Fund, the Hearst Foundations, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.